Or would you turn to Mark 16? Mark 16, and we'll be going through verses 4 to 8. And just a a footnote uh, before I begin, um, here we come to the final and the last passage in the book of Mark. As you can see in your Bible, uh, there is that square bracket uh, at the beginning of verse 9, and then it goes all the way down to the end of what you have in this chapter. And the reason why there is the opening and closing brackets in this passage and the following passage is because this bit was added later. It is not part of the original manuscript. If you want to know more about this, um, feel free to come and speak to me and I'll talk to you about it. Um, however, I don't want in any way to take um, this uh, precious time and address the most important subject in the Gospel of Mark. And the most important subject in the Gospel of Mark, as is stated, is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the resurrection of our Lord is not just a belief among many other Christian beliefs. It breathes life to all of our belief. The resurrection from the dead, brothers and sisters, is the bedrock of all of our hope, all of our eager anticipations. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be um, just a wishful thinking. All our hopes will be like meaningless dreams that would begin by us entering into some dr- sleep and then it ends up when we wake up into our reality of whatever that reality would have been. Uh, what is the meaning of the resurrection of Christ? When Christ, our Lord, cried out, it is finished, with his resurrection, it is as though it was the Father's response saying amen to that. Yes, indeed, it is finished. The resurrection is when God declared publicly his approval to what Christ has accomplished on the cross. It is the greatest evidence the, the crown of all crowns that proves that the debt for sin was paid. The battle against Satan is won. The jaws of death has been crushed. And the eternal life is secured. It is God's personal signature upon the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. It is the seal of God's divine ring. Suppose that Jesus bore our sins. Suppose he did that, but without any resurrection. And if Jesus had remained incarcerated in his tomb and his body decayed, what assurance would we have had that our sins were forgiven? How could we say that Jesus was any better than Muhammad or Hare Krishna or any of those old false teachers whose bodies decayed in their tombs. If our prince of life was still subject to death, then what hope do we have that we will pass through death to glory? 
As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And we are of all men most to be pitied. And if this was so, if the resurrection was not there, it did not exist, we might as well say that Christianity would have won the trophy of the most miserable and irrelevant religions of the world. But aren't we glad that this is not the case? Aren't we glad that God attested that Jesus indeed satisfied the wrath against us by raising him up from the dead. Thanks be to our God. He did not leave us in any doubt. Praise be to our God that he affirmed the benefits of Christ because Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And this remains to be a historic fact that is undeniable irrefutable even by the most scholarly minded of this world. The greatest critiques that this world could ever produce against Christianity come to this one singular event in history, namely the resurrection of Christ, and they are all humbled and they lay their hands upon their mouths in utter astonishment. They're all dumbfounded because the evidences for Jesus' resurrection is too great to be denied. And in this narrative, as we examine the evidences at hand that point to the physical resurrection of Jesus' body, the question that we all must answer What are we going to do about the empty tomb? And this fact bears heavy upon our hearts to respond to because the resurrection from the dead affects every single one in this room one way or another. Are you an unbeliever? The physical resurrection of Jesus means you have been weighed in the balance and found wanted. Because Jesus is coming back for you to judge you. If you do not quickly place your trust in him for your salvation. Are you one of his? Well, what's waiting for you and I is a real glorified body, just like our Lord's body. A body that knows no sickness nor pain. A real physical body that is able to enjoy all of Jesus' blessings plus Jesus himself. A real physical world. A new earth where we will live together. Rejoice together. Worship together. Laugh together. Fellowship together without any sin that could possibly hinder our enjoyment. But get this. This is the catch. This is important to note that Jesus promised that what we do in this life will impact our eternity to come. 
What you do before resurrection, before our resurrection, will impact what is to come after our resurrection. How will you respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, let's read Mark 16, verses 4 to 8. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. He said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, he Here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Just... um, Moving back a few steps, and I just want to talk to you about the kind of faith that we reject that is roaming around even in many Reformed churches called blind faith. We reject this kind of faith. It's a kind of faith that is anti-logical. It's all about feelings kind of faith, and it's, uh, it doesn't rely on anything that makes sense. If, if you want to deal or um, discuss or talk about mathematics or science or anything of this matter, yes, you need to have your brain. You need to use it. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ or any kind of matter of faith, well, this is when you get your brain out of your head and stick it into the fridge because you don't need it. That's the kind of blind faith that we reject. How do I come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, if you squeeze your eyes long enough and hard enough, you'll get there. Just don't use reason. Why? Well, because blind faith says that faith is contrary, is mutually exclusive with logic. Well, apart from the fact that this would be a great insult to any kind of rational person in this room, Uh, This goes totally contrary to the scripture and what the Bible teaches. Because though though the word of God is the ultimate source of truth, yes, absolutely. But on top of that, what the scripture always calls us to do is to always think, always consider, always reason. The mind is always the gateway to the heart. We know that because when you read the book of Acts, you find that Paul always reasoned with people, always com- compelled them to consider, and he persuaded them. Jesus also, so many times, in fact, all the time, he would use reason. He, Jesus always makes sense, right? This is why, for example, in Mark 8, 36, when he reasoned with unbelievers, he would say to them, for what does it profit a man to gain a whole world and forfeit his soul? And Mark here, in his passage, his main goal is to persuade us all through this narrative that Jesus did rise from the dead. That is the logical conclusion of this narrative. 
Mark begins his gospel, gospel by claiming that Jesus is the son of God. And the entire writing of the gospel of Mark confirms this truth. And now he ends the gospel with the resurrection, which does prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is a divine Messiah. That he's the Lord of all. And, and so this, because of this, it will um, formulate the outline for today's message, which um, attempts to prove by means of scripture and logic that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. It did take place 2,000 years ago. We'll start with his death and burial. That's the first point. We'll have four points. That's the first point. Death and burial. What does that mean? Well, to prove the resurrection, we must first prove that Jesus did die and he was buried. Why is that? Because many critiques, they refute the res resurrection of Jesus on this basis. They claim that Jesus, um, some of them claim that Jesus looked like he, he died. But actually he didn't. So they say. And so after they placed Jesus in the tomb, a couple of days later, he kind of re recovered just enough to manage to escape. Well, what do we say about this? How do we respond to that? Well, multiple eyewitnesses saw Jesus die dead. First, you have the Roman centurions in Mark 15, 39, um, who saw him dead, and Matthew confirms this. He says that it's not just the centurions, it's also the soldiers that were there with him. They were professional killers, and they knew what a dead man looks like when they saw one. And they confirmed that Jesus was dead. Second, Mark tells us that there were also some women looking on from a distance. So there were women there who were followers of Christ. They looked and they testified that he was dead. Luke tells us that the whole crowd saw Jesus die. And when it comes to the burial, you have number one, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Who were they? They were um, two of the Sanhedrin, well-renowned members of the Jewish senates, if you like. Mark says Joseph was a prominent member meaning he's one whose eyewitness had much weight. And now both of these men carried the body of Jesus Christ when he died. Not only did they carry his body, they wrapped his body, they buried his body. And again, you have women who witnessed Jesus as he was being laid in a tomb. And number three, you've got the Roman soldiers who were guarding that tomb. So what do you have? You have at least two persons in four different categories, different groups that testify to Jesus' death. Number one, you've got the Roman soldiers. Two, you've got the official Jewish senates, the Sanhedrin. Three, you've got the mocking crowd that cried out, crucify him. And number four, you've got his brokenhearted followers. At least two of these different groups of people. And if you would ask any of them, did Jesus die? Was he buried? 
all of these eyewitnesses would testify beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus truly died, that his body was buried in a tomb. And there is, by the way, not even one single historic record in, in the first century of even Jesus' enemies that would deny the death and the burial of Christ. So, this claim of those critiques, critics who uh, were not present there 2,000 years ago, and yet they claim that Jesus didn't really die, but kind of somehow sneaked out on his own, this claim cannot stand any legal trial whatsoever. Besides, besides that, again, just using some simple common sense, suppose that Jesus did not die. Suppose that he attempted to sneak out. How could someone who was just scourged, stabbed with a spear, nailed to a cross for six hours, somehow rolled a large, extremely large stone on his own and then overcome the Roman soldiers who were guarding the stone? Other, critic, other critiques that, that would say that this story, well, it was in, entirely fabricated. It wasn't true from the beginning till the end. It was just made up by Jesus' followers in order to con people into believing Christian faith. Really? Think about it. Who was the only person who had the courage to go to Pontius Pilate Asked for Jesus' body in order to give him an honorable burial. Well, it wasn't one of Jesus' relatives, nor was it his disciples. Who was it? It was one of the Sanhedrin members. That Mark explicitly tells us all of them falsely condemned Jesus to death. Meaning, think of the ugly stain of shame and embarrassment that would have scarred the reputation of Jesus' early disciples. If you were intelligent enough to fabricate a story to con people in believing a lie, it's just a lie. Surely you would have this cleverness, the cunningness to fabricate a story where you're going to come on top. Right? Or at least, the very least, not to shame yourself in it for life. This would be absurd. It would be illogical. And yet, this is what Mark affirms to be the true story behind the death and the burial of Christ. Jesus did die and he was buried. But what about the empty tomb? Was the tomb really empty on Sunday morning? Because in order for the resurrection to have taken place, then we must prove that the tomb was empty. So we come to the second point, the empty tomb. Now, just to set the scene in the background and what we've looked at so far um, up until um, today's passage is that we've, if, if you examine the four Gospels, you find that Mary Magdalene was the first person to come to the tomb. The other women arrived just a little bit later. And when 
Um, by the time Mary arrived to the tomb, Jesus already resurrected, rose from the dead. The angel rolled the stone at the entrance of the tomb. The Roman guards that were present there, they freaked out and they fled the scene. And so Mary came and she found the tomb empty. She didn't know much about resurrection. She didn't know anything about resurrection And so she started panicking, and in John chapter 20, verse 2, tells us she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, and she said to them, and pay attention to what she said, her own testimony, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. So although she didn't believe in the resurrection, and by the way, no one believed the resurrection. No one had in in his mind that Jesus was going to actually rise from the dead. He predicted it. He told them so many times, but no one believed it. And even though that was the case, the fact that she thought somebody took the Lord's body out of the tomb is a clear evidence that the tomb was empty. Now, catching up to Mary, we'll come to verse 4. The other women, they came, and it says in verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. So the angel rolled away the stone. And by the way, it's very important to note here that the angel did not roll the stone away so that Jesus would get out. If you recall, Jesus' resurrection body was able to penetrate through walls. He did that so many times when he appeared to the disciples. So it wasn't for Jesus to get out of the the tomb. No, the, the stone was rolled in order for the eyewitnesses to be able to enter the tomb. Now, who were the eyewitnesses? In the Gospel of Mark, we have Mary of Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that Peter and John, they were the ones to run to the tomb and enter and found it empty. And you have Matthew 28 and verse 11. This is an interesting one because it says that the Roman guards saw what happened. They were also eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. But what's interesting about it is that what they did after that, when they freaked out, they went straight to the chief priests and they told them what had happened. And uh, the chief priests, what they did was they gave them some uh, large amount of money to, to those guards in order for them to invent a story, to create a story whereby um, they would say that the disciples of Jesus came and they stole the body of Jesus while the guards were asleep. That was their lie. Now, what's interesting is, we're going to address this lie in a moment, but what's interesting is the, the, the fact that they came out with this lie in and of itself affirms that even Jesus' enemies agreed, were persuaded that the tomb was empty. That's why they came up with this lie. Had they believed that somehow Jesus' body was in a tomb, that would have presented the body of Jesus and it would have brought death to Christian belief at that time. But they couldn't. The tomb was empty and they also agreed to it. Now, could it be true? 
could this claim that the disciples somehow stole the body away while the gods were asleep to be legitimate? Could it be? Well, again, let's think about it carefully. In order for the disciples to steal the body, to roll an extremely large stone, and then carry the corpse in the middle of the night, this would have created a a tremendous loud of noise. Now, if this was the case, did the gods have deep sleep? Were they in deep sleep? And if that was the case, if they had so much deep sleep so that they couldn't even hear the, the loud noise, how did they know that it was the disciples that stole the body and not somebody else? How did they know that? Or was the, 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 the noise of the moving of the stone was so loud that they woke up from their sleep? Well, if that was the case, why couldn't they overcome the disciples with their weapons and their killing skills? Knowing that if they failed to overcome the disciples, their necks would have been on the line. Because that would have been rendered clumsy in their duties. So, did they wake up or were they still asleep? And suppose that somehow that these terrified fishermen, uneducated fishermen, somehow outclevered the gods. Why couldn't they capture the disciples later and torture them in order for the disciples to confess where they laid the body? I mean, it's not like the Romans believed in human rights and they couldn't torture people, right? But Jesus did die. He was buried. The tomb was empty. Jesus couldn't overcome the gods and run away with his scourged, pierced, nailed body. The coward disciples couldn't outclever the gods, plus all the eyewitness accounts. All of these point to the fact that it was a triumphant resurrection from the dead, exactly as the Old Testament and Jesus himself predicted so many times. And if these were not enough evidences, we come to the third point, the resurrection. The resurrection. Did Jesus really actually rise from the dead? Spurgeon said, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. Christianity stands or falls on that event on the truthfulness of the resurrection. So back to the narrative, when the women found a clear access to this tomb, verse 5, it says, entering the tomb, so they entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. So these women entered the tomb and they found a young man. Who's a young man? Matthew tells us he was an angel appearing in the form of a man. Angels did that so many times. A common form of man, that's not unusual. His countenance, Matthew tells us, was like lightning 
His clothing was as white as snow. And Luke tells us there were two of them. But it seems like Mark was interested in the one who was the spokesman of the two angels. So as the women entered in and they looked, there are two young men sitting. They were shocked. It says there in the Gospel of Mark, they were amazed. So they were so overwhelmed with the dazzling brightness of the angels. Of course, I'm sure you would. I would. Luke 24, verse 5, it tells us that they were so shocked. It says, they were terrified and they bowed their faces to the ground. And the angels were well, well aware of this, of course, seeing women coming in and terrified and bowing down. They knew that they were scared. So in response, in verse 6, it says, And he, that's the spokesman of the two angels, um, said to them, Do not be amazed. Meaning, don't be afraid. It's not the time to be afraid. It's a time to rejoice. Why? You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who's being crucified. Meaning, I know exactly who you're looking for. He came to the right place at the wrong time. How come? He's long gone. He's long gone. Says he has risen. He is not here. So these were the two angelic beings. Eyewitnesses. Confirming the resurrection of Jesus. And it had to be true. Do you know why? Because the scripture again and again tells us the testimony of two or three witnesses, the truth would be established. This is why you'll find always at least two witnesses to affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why John and Peter ran. That's why there is Magdalene, but there were also two other women that were there. And two angels here. Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea. Anyway, so to validate their claim, this angel said, Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Meaning, go ahead and check it out for yourselves. According to John, what did, what did the women see when they entered into the tomb? Well, they went in, they checked, like Peter and John did the same thing too. And found linen cloth that he was wrapped with lying there. And that piece of cloth that was covering his face, what was it like? It was neatly folded. Neatly folded. What does that mean? Nobody stole Jesus' body. No thief steals a body and somehow has just enough time to fold the cloth and then runs away. Well, who did it? Well, I heard that some people would, would say, it must have been Jesus. His, his mom taught him since he was young to make up his bed when he wakes up. And so that's what Jesus did. I found this to be um, the most interesting and most appealing to the case. Anyhow, we come to this, and again, 
the skeptics would say, oh, well, ah, it's all fabricated fairy tale story. What in the world, these angelic beings and women going in and out? and It's all a fairy tale story. Well, to start, give me one solid evidence that this was a fairy tale story. Second, friends, do you know that in a Jewish society at the time of Jesus, women were considered to be the lowest class in Israel? Back then, uh, women were not to be seen or heard. They just run in the background. And even in a court of law at that time, they were never brought into question as though they were legitimate eyewitnesses. It always had to be men. So again, if you are going to make up a fairy tale story about someone who rose from the dead and you want people to believe it, why in the world would you invent one where the primary witnesses are the women that you know that no one will take their claim seriously? What benefits would you get out of this? What benefit would you get out of a story where men would look like a bunch of unfaithful coward wusses and the women were the ones who would be wearing the pants at a, at a time when a society would look down on women? Logically, this is a suicide to your fairy tale idea that you want people to believe in. And yet, all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all affirm that it was the women that went first. They were the first eyewitness, eyewitnesses to Jesus' death, empty tomb, and his resurrection. And they never wanted to change it. Why would anyone in his right mind come up with such a story where, again, the creators of the story would make themselves out to be the biggest losers? You don't do that. That sounds illogical, right? Unless it was really what must have happened. And yet, most importantly, and I believe the greatest evidence to the resurrection of Christ is the fourth point here, which is post-resurrection. Post-resurrection. So verse 7, it says, But go tell his disciples and Peter. He separated Peter from the rest of the disciples. And, um, well, why did he do that? Why did the angel single out Peter? Some say um, it's because Peter denied the Lord, you remember, three times. And because of that, um, he wanted the angel wanted to communicate that in spite of Peter's denial, Jesus had not disowned him. He never abandoned him. Well, that's beautiful. And it might be true. Others say, well, it was because Peter was the leader of the apostles and he was kind of singling out Peter to tell him, step up, get in the game, 
Now it's a real deal. Now you've got to lead the rest of the apostles in, in the proclamation of the gospel. Well, we, we don't know. It could be both um, um, are, are true. Uh, we don't know for sure. But what we know for sure is that the angel said to them this, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He already told them that. Not only did he tell them about the resurrection, he told them the GPS location where he would meet them. He did tell them that in the Gospel of Mark 14, verse 28. We looked at that before where Jesus did say to them that I will go ahead uh, um, before you uh, into Galilee after his resurrection. Galilee. Um, Galilee was a place where Jesus saved them, where Jesus called them into ministry. And it was it is Galilee where Jesus will give them the great commission. It was in Galilee. But what did the disciples do? They were so scared. Their hearts were full of fear. They didn't follow Jesus' command. They stayed in Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem up until a time when Jesus appeared to them. And he told them, come on, guys, come on, go to Galilee. And then they went to Galilee. That's where he appeared to the apostles. And according to Paul, to over um, more than 500 disciples, Jesus appeared to them. He showed them his wounded side, his pierced hands. He ate with them. He spoke with them. He did all of that. And then guess what happened after that? What was the impact of this? Those coward, discouraged disciples, after they saw the risen Lord, they were compelled to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. The salvation is in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that every gospel message in the book of Acts, the one thing that is shared in common, the one thing that was referenced every single uh, evangelistic message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they did that even to the point that the majority suffered greatly and died violent death for the preaching of the resurrection of Christ. Again, some skeptics that don't really use the logic properly, accurately, they'll look into this and say, oh yeah, so what? The world is full of dumb religious fanatics that die for what they believe to be true. Big deal. I mean, haven't you heard of uh, suicide bombers? All these people that just die for what they believe in to be true when they're wrong? Well, what do we say about this? We say, who cares what people believe to be true? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not saying that the disciples died for what they believed to be true. No. 
What did they die for? They died for something that they actually saw with their eyes. Their hands have touched. So, Mr. Skeptic, you've got to explain two things. First, you have to explain how do you account for the radical change for being so discouraged, so scared disciples to now they go all the way out and they want to praise him. They want to adore him. They want to worship him and live for him kind of disciples. How do you explain this radical change? Something must have happened. What was it? Secondly, which I believe to be the uppercut, is that you have to explain how they're willing to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel salvation in his name. What did they gain out of this? Let me tell you that what they gained. Nothing but persecution. Martyrdom, no benefit whatsoever. The scripture tells us even that they were imprisoned, they were flogged, they were stoned, they suffered shipwreck, financial suicide, exposed to death again and again and again. And then they finally died for something that they claimed to have seen and heard, not believed in. How do you logically, rationally explain that? So when we talk about uh, Muslim fundamentalist, a suicide bomber who just stays so long enough and squeezes his eyes, like we said earlier, hard enough, yes, he can believe what he wants to believe. If you want to believe something so badly, you will believe it. And if that is the case, of course, it's easy to explain it away. But how do you logically explain the fact that most of the eyewitnesses, it wasn't one or two. If it was perhaps one or two, you, we, we could say they're lunatics. They're, they're, they're crazy, mentally weirdo people. They should be uh, put in a mental institution. But when you have over 500 people and most of them died for what they saw, heard, and touched, how do you explain that? You know, nobody dies for a lie. Yes, perhaps if back then there was some insurance and they want to pay their children and they were poor and starving, they'll die for a lie. But there was no insurance 2,000 years ago. Who would die for a lie? In fact, we can take this even step further and say, who would dare to even die for something that is true that is unimportant, and insignificant. Right? If, if you don't comb your hair well, and I know I'll be risking my life if I tell you, you you're not combing your hair well, I'm, I'm not going to go and tell you you're not combing your hair well, even though it may be true. For those disciples to be willing to be tortured, to death, it, it means Jesus' resurrection was both true, but not just true. 
but crucially important to be proclaimed. This is why Mark ends his gospel with verse 8 about the women. That's how important and amazing the resurrection is that says about the women that they went out and look at the words that describe the women at that time when they realized that Jesus did rise from the dead. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They were amazed. Anyone who opens his eyes and embraces the reality of Jesus' resurrection, it would be so breathtaking that he must be awestruck. It is a jaw-dropping, soul-gripping truth. Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. That is to say that Jesus is not confined to the law of death. They were trembling. He is to be feared. Astonishment. He is to be adored because Jesus is such mind-boggling kind of person. He's a, he's a God of astonishment. He's a God of Fascination and amazement, a God of wonder and admiration. He is unpredictable, incomprehensible, unfathomable. So the question is then, how will you respond to the resurrection of Christ? Jesus is the Son of God. That was the claim by Mark at the start of the gospel, and now he confirms it by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if after following this logical conclusion, and you still don't believe that he is a risen Savior in such a way that you would embrace him, listen to me, the burden is no longer upon God nor upon the preacher. You have to ask yourself, since this makes perfect sense and it is airtight, why am I not believing this? What am I still waiting for in order for me to place my trust in Jesus? Because like I said at the start of the message, Jesus promised that he will come back. He will come back. He will rapture his people but he's also coming back for judgment upon unbelieving sinners who even in the light of so many irrefutable evidences, evidence after evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. And yet they look into those evidences with their eyes are staring at them and they would say, no, I will still not believe. Why? He will come for judgment. Yet one more time, I offer you Jesus Christ. 
I present him to you that he's the only true begotten son of God attested to you by God who raised him from the dead. His body never saw decay. His soul was never abandoned to hell. And because he is the prince of life, he is now seated at the right hand of God in bodily form. Some people say, ah, oh, Jesus rose from the, from the dead. We know that his spirit is everywhere. His spirit is here and there. And Jesus rose from the dead in a bodily form, physical resurrection. And this Jesus, if you call upon his name, if you consider him, as your perfect substitute, your perfect representative before the Father, if you take him to be your Savior and salvation, if you but receive him now as your Lord of your life, the Savior of your soul, I stand upon God's word and I say to you, you will be saved even now. Well, to my brothers, as I was researching and writing this message, I came across a wonderful quote. <clears throat> and I want to finish by sharing that quote and then followed by a couple of passages that I really love about the resurrection of Christ. The quote goes like this. Who is this that comes from the tomb? with brilliant garments from the bed of death. He that is glorious in his appearance, walking in the greatness of strength. It is your prince, O Zion. Christian, it is your Lord. He has trodden the wine press alone. He has stained his clothing with blood, but now as the firstborn from the womb of death, he meets the morning of his resurrection. He arises, a conqueror from the grave. He returns with blessings from the world of spirits. He brings salvation to the sons of men. Never did the returning son usher in a day so glorious. It was a jubilee of the universe. Brothers, sisters, the devil once upon a time had the power of death. And our fear of death enslaved us. It terrified us. It paralyzed us. But by the resurrection of Christ, our prince trampled upon, upon the devil, rendering him powerless, as Hebrews 2 says. And so we must never fear death. We must be embracing death with an open arm as a doorway to entering in and live far more glorious life. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. This is the very next immediate event in God's divine calendar. Look what it says. For the Lord himself will descend. That is resurrected Jesus. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, so we will rise from the dead. Let us sing with the biblical song that says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as a result, of this wonderful reality that is awaiting every believer. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. One day, no matter how much money you and I have in the bank account, it will equal dust. Dust. And the house and the mortgage and your backyard and your veggie patch and your shed and your cars will equal to sand. Sand. And your relationships outside of Jesus Christ. No matter how much that makes you feel good. When you enter into the grave. You will agree with Solomon when he said, vanity of vanity and grasping of the wind. Brothers, the resurrection is real. Eternal life is real. Brothers, sisters, this is a time to work hard. This is not the time to waste our lives watching television, wasting our lives. Doing stuff that will equal to sand, dust, and dirt. This is a time to work hard for the Lord. And even if persecution arises, remember that the Son of God, just as He rose from the dead, He opened death, and death became a tunnel for us so that we will also. Follow his resurrection. Keep your eyes on eternity, brothers.
Keep your eyes on eternity. Let's pray. Lord, as once been prayed to you, pray, we pray, Lord God, would you stamp eternity on our eyeballs? Would you remind us, Lord, that our time on earth is very short? Death is real and eternal life is such a long time. Would you put in our hearts so much love for our Savior? Put in our bones, Lord God, fire to exalt his name. That we would find any enjoyment in this world apart from glorifying the Savior at best, tasteless. Tasteless. Not that we would not enjoy all the things that you give us from your hand, but we would return and transform that joy of your creation into a desire to exalt Christ all the more with every minute that we have in our lives that we will consider Christ so precious, so dear, that we would choose to dedicate these moments of our lives to him. May he be exalted in our lives forever. In Jesus' name, amen.